This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now look, we've become used to extraordinary days in Westminster, perhaps even immune to them. But Wednesday, September the 4th, 2019, will be right up there if and when someone comes to write the history books. Largely because so much has happened. The day began with all the fallout from rebel Tory MPs, 21 of them kicked out of the party for rebelling on Brexit. We had Boris Johnson's first outing at PMQs, a spending review as the Chancellor Sajid Javid announced billions of pounds of spending. Then rebel MPs took on the agenda in the House of Commons, passed a bill to delay Brexit until after October the 31st, and then Boris Johnson making the case for an election he says he doesn't want, and then didn't get it. So this is it. This is the day as it unfolded. I've tried to speak to as many people as possible to paint a picture of what was going on. Bear with us. There'll be traffic noise, protester noise, background noise, even buskers. But this is a picture of a hard day's fight. Well, good morning. It's the morning after the nightmare before for Boris Johnson. Waking up in Downing Street this morning, having... uh, Having had a pretty bad day in the office yesterday, it has to be said. First of all, he lost his majority when the former Tory minister, Philip Lee, got up and walked across the Commons to join the Lib Dems. Then he lost uh, the big vote. Rebel Tory MPs uniting with opposition MPs to take control of the parliamentary agenda, with a big old majority as well over the government. Then he lost 21 MPs, including, was it, eight cabinet ministers, including Philip Hammond, David Gork, Rory Stewart, all in the cabinet until July, all booted out of the Tory party for rebelling against the government, a threat that was made at the weekend by Downing Street without them necessarily thinking they had to see it through. And so then Boris Johnson stands up and says, well, I don't want an election, let's have an election. To which Jeremy Corbyn's response seems to be, I do want an election, let's not have one. Uh, It's going to be... A hell of a day, I think, in uh, Parliament. It's now, what is it? It's just coming up to 10 o'clock. As I walk across Westminster Bridge, Big Ben would be bonging were it not for the fact he's had his innards removed uh, for restoration. So I'm just approaching, in fact, the, the group of disappointed tourists who emerge from Westminster Station every day, clutching their cameras, ready to take a photo of the iconic Big Ben Tower they've seen so many times in films and TV and books and postcards only to discover it's just a massive monstrosity of scaffolding, uh, much less impressive than they were expecting. A bit of a letdown, a metaphor perhaps, for how people are currently viewing Downing Street this morning. Uh, So it's 10 o'clock in the morning. It's going to be 10 o'clock tonight, I think, before we get something approaching. Any clarity on votes, uh, both on stopping no deal and on a general election. And the day's getting off to a worst possible start with the guy who stands on Westminster Bridge playing the bagpipes. Strap yourself in. So 
just popped into Portcullis House in Parliament and almost immediately bumped into Sam Dima, now a former Tory MP. How does that, how does that sound, sir? former Tory MP? Well, it's strange. I've been a member of the party since I was a student. I've committed a lot to the party and um, been through another party for doing what is clearly in the national interest. Um, if Number 10 seriously had any grand strategy, they would know that an extension is on the way and no deal is not a good thing. And I think the first thing is I just can't see how anybody in that building can see what is happening now and think there is some grand design. This is a product of some grand design that is going to unfold to the Conservative Party's success. So when you went through the lobby last night uh, and voted against the government to take control of the parliamentary agenda, how did that feel? What went through your mind when you were doing that? Well, I, I mean, I was very, I'm very confident, very proud that we were doing the right thing. And we had been told before we an hour before the vote by the whips that if we voted, the whip would be withdrawn. So I knew exactly what the full consequences would be. And did you all go and through um, together? No, we, we no we, we didn't all go through together. But um, it's never nice rebelling against your party. Have you ever done it before? I think it's, oh, I've done it a few times on Brexit. <laughs> never. But but I've been parliamentary private secretary to a prime minister. I've been a government whip. So I understand the psychology very well around rebelling and not rebelling. And one of the things you, you're taught never to do is never to rebel. The strangest thing is we have a situation where most of the people in the cabinet are people who rebelled. The irony in this whole process is that those who were a protest movement in the party for years, including people in the cabinet who voted repeatedly against Theresa May's deal, at the first sign of dissent, chuck people out of the party. I think it's hugely ironic. And how were you told? Roy Stewart said he just got a text saying he'd had the whip withdrawn. I got a phone call from the chief whip. I think he wanted to make sure I had definitely got the message. Um, but it's, it's strange. It's not just strange for us. It's also strange for the local parties. You know, I had in one of my branches someone getting in touch asking me whether I could still do the autumn supper. <laughs> Yeah, and um, kind of what <laughs> kind of what my new status meant as far so as so what local is your plan? Concerned. Are you going to try and still stand in your seat? I I, I I intend to be a candidate at the election. So whether that's for all the Conservatives or not? Yes. Yeah. Are you planning to join the Lib Dems? I haven't thought that far. You know, it's, that's not a is, no. Is, I've asked you before is, and you've said no. This is no, no. I mean, look, I've just been through another Conservative Party, <laughs> and you're asking me whether I have undying loyalty to the Conservative Party. <laughs> Um, to, to which the answer is, I'd like to stand as a Conservative candidate, but let's see, I don't know. Well, I won't say it is, but we just bumped into one of your former Tory I really don't colleagues. know. So, yeah. uh, and uh, they, sh they said they want to shake you by the hand, and you said, I'd rather you'd been in the lobbies with us last night. Good luck. Uh, and then someone else there saying, uh, good luck to you. And you said this isn't it, though. This, not, this isn't the end of the process. This isn't all going to go away. How do you think this all, this all pans out for, for those... Tory MPs who, who stuck with the government last night? Yeah, I think to the extent that there's any discernible strategy here, it's the fact that they, some people, I think in Downing Street, want to make the Conservative Party look as much as possible like the Brexit Party. So a sacrifice of the Ramonas, as they would call them, is to their advantage, is how they see it. So the next step, you know, first we were told we needed a no deal as Prime Minister. Then we were told that you couldn't be a member of the government unless you signed a no-deal pledge. And now if you vote against the government on no-deal, you get thrown out of the party. The next step is to get every Conservative MP who wants to stand at election to sign the no-deal pledge. So for those who didn't rebel yesterday, their time will come when they will have to ask themselves again whether they want to be... MPs for a New Deal Conservative Party. And when you made this point to one of your former colleagues, their response was, oh, f I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I think this train is heading in only one direction, which is the Conservative Party becoming the Brexit Party. So we're all going to have to ask ourselves at some point or not whether we want to stay on this train or get off. We've got a busy day in the Commons today. We've got PMQs, spending round, big votes later on. Where Have we you got a spending round? I thought sitting here at nearly 11 o'clock, I thought that was still happening. Well, well it, I think it is happening. The, the, <laughs> the, the point I'm making is that in normal times, 
how the government was going to be spending taxpayers' money on schools and hospitals would be the big news item. But nobody's even no. talking about it. About four or five. Uh, my question was going to be, where are you going to sit in the House of Commons? Are you going to sit on the Tory benches or are you going to go and join your almost new friends on the Lib Dem side? I'll sit on the Tory benches. OK, so it's just coming up to midday. Uh, just joining a whole load of stampede of other journalists heading down to uh, Prime Minister's questions. Boris Johnson's first, and as some wags point out, in theory, it could be his last. If there is a general election and he ends up uh, losing uh, that, he could end up only making one outing. I suspect not. I think expectations are quite high amongst Tory MPs. Uh, they think that this is the sort of thing he'll be quite good at. Theresa May wasn't brilliant. Rarely beaten by Jeremy Corbyn, but rarely flattened him either. a petition on his own Labour website with 50, uh, on the Labour website with 57,000 people including Carol, Nigel, Graham and Phoebe calling for an election. I don't know whether, whether there's a Jeremy on the list but Mr Speaker I know he's worried about free trade deals with America but there's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house and he's on that bench. Will he confirm again? the friends of this country are to be found in Paris and in Berlin and in the White House and he thinks that they're in the Kremlin and in Tehran and in, and in, and, and in Caracas and I think he's Caracas. The Shadow Education Secretary says that their economic policy is, and I quote Mr Speaker, by your leave, shit or bust. I say, I say it's both. I say it's both, Mr Speaker. So that was Boris Johnson at his first PMQs, possibly his last. We'll, we'll discuss that uh, in a moment. I'm joined by Tom Hamilton, co-author of Punch of Duty Politics, basically a guide to a history of and a how to survive manual PMQs. It should be clear, you've your knowledge of it is because you used to help Ed Milliman yeah, prepare right, for PMQs. Yeah. So you know what it's like yeah. going into that den of noise and mm-hmm. whatever else. So I suppose, that the, what's your top line review of Boris Johnson's debut? It was, um, I would say, poor and surprisingly poor because one of the things about leaders' first PMQs is they almost always win them. Um, you know, you've got a, a bit of goodwill go, going into it. You've got the, you've got a bit of novelty. You prepare a few, a few good lines, and you win. Theresa May won her first PMQs pretty comfortably with a, with the um, uh, remind you of any one line where she sounded like Thatcher. Um, people don't remember it now, but Ed Miliband did a really good first PMQs where he beat David Cameron on the issue of, um, of child benefit. David Cameron had a very successful first PMQs back in the day. And um, normally you do all right in the first one. And the fact that he started at such a a low point, I think we'll, we'll really, ought to really worry the Tories, particularly since he was pretty poor yesterday when he gave a statement as well. He's not actually a particularly impressive Commons performer for, for reasons which are pretty obvious when you sort of study his, his, long, his, his, his longer term career, and, and that's a problem for him. Is it because, actually, although it's punch and politics and it's knockabout and all that, there's actually a degree of formality to being at the dispatch box, being in the House of Commons? that for a while Theresa was quite good at because she sort of stands up straight and she was quite yeah. calm and she doesn't flail about too much and she sort of feels proper because of the surroundings. Yeah, Theresa May used to, I mean, she had many failings at PMQs, but she tended to give what sounded like a decent answer to most of the questions. She sounded serious about it and she sounded as if it mattered. Johnson had one thing that he said over and over again and it wasn't really the answer to the question. I mean, you've, got, you've got a problem. If just, just the logic of the answer to the question, if Corbyn's basic question is, what's your strategy for um, negotiating with Europe? And your answer is, we're not telling you, then you can't get away with saying you're undermining our negotiating strategy because you haven't said what it is. So then if you were being trying to be nice, what yep. would you say were his best lines or his best moments? I don't think he had any particularly good moments. They've decided that it is in their interests to push the Labour's frightened of the election idea as hard as they can. He, he was, I don't want to say effective, but he, he plugged away at that line pretty hard and no one would have come out, come out of PMQs not having heard it. I think, I think the big problem with it they've got with that line is that it would follow if Labour were really clearly trying to stop an election for all time. And actually it's a line, Labour haven't been pushing this particularly well no. but the fundamental point is we don't want an election now because we don't trust you but actually the Labour line is they, they don't trust Boris Johnson to abide by the law that's passed and to not muck about with the date of the election to put it beyond October 31st to make no inevitable. I think there's also there's another argument that today and yesterday have really showed which is that um, 
you, you want to keep your opponent where your opponent is weak. And it turns out that where Labour's opponent is weak is in the chamber of the House of Commons. So not having an election for a bit ties Boris Johnson down to the Commons for a lot longer than he wants. He wants to get out as quickly as possible and start travelling around the country talking about um, his, his various campaign themes. If he, if he can't have an election, he's got to keep on coming back to the dispatch box and on current form getting hammered. And it's not like he's completely new to it. To be fair to Jeremy, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's still not great. But he hadn't been near the dispatch box before he became Labour leader. You know, yeah. Boris Johnson had a couple of years as Foreign Secretary. I mean, it's not knockabout being Foreign Secretary most of the time, but you do, you know, he's had a practice. You've got, you've got to be accountable to the House of Commons, and he, and he, and he was in, in the normal way. Um, he wasn't necessarily brilliant at it, but he wasn't notably terrible at it either. Just no one was really watching. I mean, the other thing that he, that he did for a long time was um, Mayor's Question Time as Mayor of London where he had eight years of that, so he had plenty of practice. And he wasn't very good at it, and he got away with it because no one really covers mayoral politics. What about jokes? Because people would expect Boris Johnson to be good at jokes. Yeah. He had a couple. He said that Jeremy Corbyn was like a chlorinated chicken. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what, what that meant beyond chlorinated chicken is a buzzword. And, and I think he was talking about he's a chicken, a chicken over, chicken, not like a leg. So it sort of worked. Although there's something a bit odd about him joking about Coronation Chicken because actually Coronation Chicken is an attack on the Tories' yeah, willingness to open up the doors to Donald yeah. Trump's America. It's really striking that Boris Johnson's attacks on, on Jeremy Corbyn and on Labour are not particularly substantive ones. They're, they're pretty sloganising ones. They're about him being a Marxist or the head of a hunter or Caracas or whatever it might be. If you're not quite engaged in this stuff, these things are going to go over your head. You have to be a quite sort of engaged Tory who is on top of what's going on in Venezuela. Yeah. So, and as a result, hate Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, what's your betting then? Is that his last PMQs? No, I don't think so. Because, not least because I think the election is not going to happen straight away. So he'll have a few more goes. I also think, look, the Tories have got a pretty good chance of coming out of the next election in government, although I think an overall majority is a, it's a pretty tall order, but it is absolutely not a done deal. And today helps to show why Labour could well have more of a chance than some people are giving them credit for. That was Tom Hamilton. Now, one of the most extraordinary moments in PMQs came when Tandeside, the Labour MP for Stroud, took Boris Johnson to task for his controversial Telegraph column last year, in which he likened women who wear the burqa to post boxes and bank robbers. Mr Speaker, if I decide to wear a turban, or you decide to wear a cross, or he decides to wear a kippah or a skullcap, or she decides to wear a hijab or a burqa, does that mean that it is open season for right honourable members of this House to make derogatory and divisive remarks about our appearance? For those of us who from a young age have had to endure and face up to being called names such as Towelhead or Taliban, or coming from Bongo Bongo land, we can appreciate full well the hurt and pain felt by already vulnerable Muslim women when they are described as looking like bank robbers and letterboxes. So, so rather than hide behind sham and whitewash investigations, when will the Prime Minister finally apologise for his derogatory and racist remarks? Which Racist remarks, Mr Speaker, which have led to a spike in hate crime. And given the increasing prevalence of such incidents within his party, when will the Prime Minister finally order an inquiry into Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, something which he and his Chancellor promised on national television? So, Tony, you've literally just come out of the House of Commons. You've been surrounded by people congratulating you. How does it feel? What's going through your mind after that amazing moment in the House of Commons? Well, look, Matt, it is very, very important that the Prime Minister is held to a higher standard, that he is answerable for his actions. Words do indeed have consequences, but what I find particularly bemusing and shocking is that the Prime Minister still didn't apologise for his derogatory and racist remarks. And I think he was pulled up by the leader of the Lib Dems, Joe Swinson also. So I think it was also very, very pertinent that only I think I could have asked a similar sort of question because I also uh, wear a turban just as those ladies who are wearing a burqa or a hijab, that they are very, very vulnerable to racist remarks. And as I pointed out, that there has been a spike in hate crime. So the Prime Minister should have apologised and we could have all moved forward. But he did nothing of the sort. What do you say to people who, for a long time, people have said, oh no, Boris Johnson's a liberal, really. He's going to reach out across 
you know, all parts of the country and he can win in parts of the country that other Tories couldn't. Well, look, he's just become more and more of a divisive figure. When he was mayor of London, then it was all about inclusivity. It was about celebrating diversity. And he would say that ad nauseum. However, now he has veered so much to the right wing. He is trying to shut down Parliament. He has, is purging his own Conservative MPs, people who have been MPs a lot longer than he has, people who have served in such high offices. But that's just where the Conservative Party is going under his leadership. And I think that he needs to be called out at every single point. And I think that the, the Conservatives under his leadership will have the shock of their lives because he is no longer that all-fluffy, all-lovable character. When did you plan to do the question? Did you practice it? I mean, it was clearly very passionate and personal, and the whole house was sort of on the edge of their seat. You only get to find out that you're doing a prime minister, uh, that you've uh, been successful in a prime minister question just uh, a few days before, so not less than a week. But I, as I was uh, rummaging my mind as to what I would be asking, um, I was thinking about uh, Brexit, about No Deal, the catastrophic consequences of that. So there was so many things swirling in my mind. But then I guess that other colleagues would be majoring on that so I needed to take a different approach I've got a lot of in my Slough constituency who wear the hijab who wear a burqa and because of that spike in hate crime I thought that I needed to be their voice and that's in essence is what MPs are doing you know they need to be a voice for the voiceless so we need to make sure that those messages are being heard loudly and proudly on uh, the floor of the house well, it, was, it was extraordinary I mean sitting watching the House of Commons for 14, 15 years. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. Thank you very much. Tick-tock, tick-tock is what? No, it's uh, two o'clock. Um, the sun is out. I'm just walking back past College Green where there are huge numbers of TV cameras and lots of people broadcasting live. I'm not totally sure what they're saying because there's not really a huge amount to say still at this stage. Walking past the rows of uh, EU flags. What can I see? Rebel Alliance defeat dictator Boris. There's a Welsh flag. There's someone trying to persuade some Remainers uh, of their case there. Um, some UKIP flags, you don't see those very often uh, these days. It's sort of weird, there's lots of people just sort of standing in quiet silence holding flags. Uh, there's an enormous Brexit Party uh, flag there. Of the, of the TV. There's somebody up here dressed. Is so there's a there's a chap there um, dressed as um, a clown with a Boris Johnson mask on, uh, with a Hitler moustache joined on the mask, and some bollocks to Brexit stickers sort of round his waist, dangling like a hula skirt. I mean that's probably what's going to tip it uh, for stopping Brexit. I would have thought. But it's quieter, it's definitely quieter than it has been. Maybe they're gearing up later. Oh, there's a Dom couple of Dominic Cummings cardboard cutouts there with horns of it. I mean, how, how does someone lay, get their hands on a Dominic Cummings cutout? Uh, that's the uh, big question. Remainers do say that Brexit has been bad for business, but if you're a blue beret manufacturer, uh, it's certainly been good for business. Um, there's loads of those around. But yeah, it's definitely quieter, at least at the moment than it was yesterday, although uh, still quite a lot of the day left to go. Sajid Javid currently in the House of Commons uh, laying out his spending review. Austerity is very much over, it turns out. Let's have a dig into what the Chancellor has been saying in the House of Commons. This party has never shied away from taking the difficult decisions to make sure that we live within our means. Those decisions were tough but they have paid off. And so I can announce today that no department will be cut next year. Every, every single government department has had its budget for day-to-day -day spending increased, at least in line with inflation. That's what I mean by the end of austerity, Mr. Speaker. So that was Sajid Javid delivering his spending review in the House of Commons. Now, in normal times, a uh, spending review would be a huge thing. Conservative chance of tearing up their economic, their entire economic strategy and spending uh, almost £14 billion, pounds, would he be an even bigger story? And yet it hasn't been really. It's been completely overshadowed by the Brexit. I'm joined by Oliver Wright, the policy editor of the Times, and Lucy Fisher, the defence correspondent. Ollie, it's all a bit weird, this, isn't it? The, isn't it? The, um, for so long we've awaited the end of austerity, it's arrived, and it's possible nobody's going to notice. It's 
barely gets a glance. No, I mean, this is sort of, you know, given the extraordinary events that are happening in the Commons Chamber, really, Sajid Javid was a sideshow and rather a bad sideshow at that. Um, you know, this is a lot of money and this will actually make quite a lot of difference to people's lives. But, I mean, I think given the uncertainties of a no-deal Brexit, whether the government will actually have the money to spend in a month's time, um, this really is a sort of, it's a holding exercise, really, and it's going to get the, um, the attention it deserves. So just the headlines, an extra £2 billion to deliver in Brexit, an overall increase of £13.8 billion, £1.7 billion for capital spending. There was money for almost every, I think he said every department would rise every in real terms. Every department's getting some, is, but some are getting more than others. And he said it's the biggest you know, one-year increase since, I think, since the, the new Labour days when they arrived and uh, started spending like crazy. Is this just pre-election spending that we should, you know, we're pretty used to? That I think this is all designed as pre-election spending. This is all um, designed so that Boris Johnson can go into the election saying, I've already put this money into X, I've put this money into Y, you're going to get more money for policing, you're going to get more money for the NHS, um, and if you vote for me, you'll get more to come. I'll do another spending review. The end of austerity is here. And, you know, it may not get much attention now, but it will get attention even when there is an election campaign, and I think that's the whole point they can, of this. They can announce it all over again when people are listening. Uh, <laughs> um, Lucy, an extra £2.2 billion for defence next year, an increase of 2.6%. That seems significant. It is significant, um, and in fact much needed. Um, I think with uh, the Gulf crisis and the poor availability of uh, British Royal Navy military escort ships um, may have slightly focused uh, the minds uh, of some in government on the need to plug some of the gaps in the defence budget um, in the coming year. But I think um, that defence, along with some of the other sort of bungs, you know, a significant amount of money, I think, what, 5% um, rise for the Ministry of Justice going to courts and prisons, that, like defence, is not a particularly sexy subject. It's not one that really tends to grip voters. But interestingly, they're, they're both areas that are really fraying at the seams now because they have been underfunded. And just on the defence, it means that we're not only keeping to the 2% target for NATO, but exceeding it more than we were? Yes, at the moment it's about 2.1%, um, and the budget is just under £40 billion a year. This is um, £2.2 billion extra, so that's about an increase of 2.6% um, on last year's budget. Um, I think when you look at the, the figures closely, um, a lot of this is probably going to end up going on pensions and a pay rise that has been promised to personnel but not been funded. Only about 300 million is for a new um, kit and capability. And actually, um, some eagle-eyed defence analysts have, have noticed uh, immediately that that correlates exactly with um, Forex, foreign exchange um, problems that the Ministry of Defence has. It's committed to um, uh, equipment purchases, mainly from the US, um, but failed to hedge appropriately its assumptions in recent years um, for the exchange rate have been wildly out. So um, pretty much all that money is probably going to go on plugging that gap. Well, <laughs> you mentioned the US. This, this presumably will please... Boris Johnson's old mate Donald Trump, who's always saying that other NATO countries should cough up more on defence. Yeah, defense. yeah, and and to be honest, he's 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 probably right. The US for for a long time has been, you know, shouldering the burden of defence in NATO, and and Donald Trump's ambivalence towards the alliance, which is the cornerstone um, of uh, the defence of you know Europe as well as North America, um, I think has got um, countries across the continent worried. Just finally, Ollie, what does this mean for the Tory party's reputation? David Cameron's long-term economic plan was all about balancing the books, about austerity, living within our means. Is this just another part of the... It's a handbrake turn, isn't is, it? Is this just <laughs> another part? You know, if, if the Tory party, it's, it's conservative, it's about conserving, it's leaving things alone, it's not being... You know, that reputation, everything they're doing now is so off-brand. This is just another part of that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, I don't know whether the voters will trust it. I mean, you know, you talk to people That's around... Boris Johnson and you know, Dominic Cummings has spent a lot of time both before he came into government doing focus groups of voters and working out what their priorities are, what they're concerned about and he believes that the Tories can become the party of the NHS if they talk about it if they put the money into it. I'm not so sure. I think voters will be very confused by this. Um, one of the things you see in polls is that people don't trust Boris Johnson anyway and I think these spending commitments will be met with a great degree of scepticism. 
and there's always the, the possibility that if Boris Johnson says I've put a billion pounds into this, Jeremy Corbyn will say I'll put a billion and one in. There's, yeah, there's, and you people can still d- be at, you can't get to a bidding war with Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, the one thing that Tory attacks on Jeremy Corbyn have done is make voters believe that he would spend the money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the same isn't if true. If you can't, you can't beat them, then you yeah, you got to join them and not spend it as <laughs> exactly. well. It'll be fascinating to see how it pans out. And like you said, uh, don't worry, all of these uh, spending commitments will be reannounced in the coming weeks when we head into the general election. Lucy Fisher, Ollie Wright, thanks so much. Still to come. We've got all the votes happening in the House of Commons, plus we try to answer your questions about what the hell is going on. We'll be back after this short break. If you looked at British politics and thought, this is not normal, join me, Matt Chorley, on my tour as I try to explain what the hell is going on. For tickets, go to mytimesplus.co.uk. This is not normal. All of you being here is not normal. I couldn't believe it when my good friend Diane Adams told me we'd sold 50,000 tickets. (laughs) So what I'm going to try and do is to try and explain why politics has gone so weird. Now this is going to take about four or five hours. Um, It's the run-up to the 2007 local government elections. And I was going to interview David Cameron. So I asked him lots of really tough questions, like why should people vote Conservative? Why do you love Cornwall so much? What's your favourite farm animal? If only I'd asked a follow-up question. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So it's now, what, oh, just gone four o'clock. The debate on the bill to delay Brexit, preventing no deal on October the 31st, is now well underway. It's fair to say that quite a lot of what has been said in the debate so far has been said before. People who didn't like Brexit, turns out, still don't like it. People who do like it still think it's quite a good idea, and quite a lot of people just want to get on with it. However, uh, the newly rebooted Philip Hammond was pretty punchy during his speech. Still from the Tory benches, despite being uh, deselected, he's still uh, sitting amongst Tory MPs. It was at pains to stress that his opposition to No Deal was not about putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. In fact, he insisted he would rather boil his own head than do that. But my favourite moment came from Alistair Burt, a former, fairly softly spoken, Foreign Office Minister, who also had the whip withdrawn after rebelling. Uh, Sir Bill Cash, the veteran you're sceptic and Brexiteer, tried to intervene, and Alistair Burt was having none of it. I've listened to the right honourable gentleman involuntarily for most of the years I've been here. (laughs) Most. Not all, because I went to campaign for him in his by-election, I think, of 1984. I've no wish to hear from him voluntarily. Let me go on. Uh, five o'clock. So I've headed down to the red leather area of the Houses of Parliament, uh, down to the House of Lords, because there's lots of action going on down there. I'm joined by Daniel Finkelstein, Times columnist and Conservative peer, and somebody who probably knows more about what's going on actually there, uh, Esther Weber, Times red box reporter and Lords nerd as listeners. I think that's fair, that's fair enough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's fair. <laughs> uh, uh, listeners of uh, the special over the summer, the beginner's guide to the House of Lords, will know exactly how much Esther knows about it. Go on then, Esther. You explain what is currently going on in the House of Lords. So basically, there's a big ding dong today in the Lords about timing. The Labour and Lib Dems put down a motion which would effectively bring a debate on the Ben Bill, the thing going through the House of Commons, possibly extending Article 50, 
um, to bring that to a close by 5pm on Friday. This is very controversial. Lots of lords don't like it because traditionally you don't have time limits on bills like this in the Lords. So it's being fought tooth and nail today by those who disagree. And we're going to see a very late sitting on that. So it's a bit like the debate that happened in the Commons on Tuesday in that it's trying to overturn what normally happens in terms of business in the Chamber. The difference is in the Commons, verbal MPs are basically trying to take control of the agenda. And in the Lords, what they're trying to do is sort of curtail the agenda, which doesn't normally happen. So normally on a bill, a debate can go on and on and on and on. And so a peer could filibuster and talk it out. Yes, that's right. And it's not just the idea that the opposition is dictating the agenda, but that there is an agenda at all, because they don't have the same kind of rules in the Lords. Um, And some peers are very up in arms about this. So, Danny... First of all, I suppose, what's your view on what's going on? Well, Esther's of course quite right. You know, one of the privileges of being a peer is that people blar on. So you're made a peer for life. Unfortunately, what they don't tell you is that some one person will be speaking for almost the whole of it. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no agenda, uh, and of course, on the surface of it, we are debating procedure. But in reality, underneath it, uh, we're debating whether there should be a no-deal Brexit. I'm not terribly impressed by people saying, you know, uh, the uh, the opposition has is breaking constitutional conventions, uh, since obviously the government's um, manoeuvre, at the very least on the Queen's speech, uh, was a breaking of convention, even if it wasn't a breaking of the constitution. And then you have a debate about whether there's a distinction between those two things. Uh, so I don't think that the government's position on that gets them very far. So that's what we're really debating and essentially the people who want uh, to stop no deal are voting on one side of that and the people who want uh, to support the government voting on the other side in the House of Lords that is splitting about two to one and it'll go on doing it. So then it becomes a question of stamina. Uh, clearly um, uh, there are on the Conservative benches supporting the government's position. People of varying degrees of enthusiasm but that's true uh, the other way. I have been I'm opposed to no deal I've been voting with those people trying to get the uh, motion through um, but I'm extremely ambivalent about uh, the position eventually that um, the anti-no deal forces uh, find themselves in all along I've been saying if you vote for for no deal at all of course you're going to end up with no deal Uh, and now when I hear that in addition to voting against every single constructive proposal uh, because they wanted an election the Labour Party is now proposing to vote against an election as well. Uh, This certainly reduces my enthusiasm for their legislative effort. And so what are you going, so are you voting against the government? I have been, yes. My view is that um, the duty of a a peer is um, not to support parties, it's to make a judgment. So the only thing I've been struggling with is whether this is the correct judgment. And actually that is quite difficult. First of all, let's not throw the conventions away altogether. There's a lot to be said for the Lords having conventions that allow this kind of free uh, debate. Uh, But there's another thing which is, is this legislative extension actually a very good thing? I think it would probably be better to have a general election. If you are really going to uh, try to send the Prime Minister with some sort of um, letter telling and what to do. I find that very difficult to see how that has worked. Right from the beginning, I've actually questioned the whole process, whole meaningful vote process, where the parliament tries to mandate the executive without replacing it, uh, which is a feature, by the way, of the fixed term up parliament act, I think. Uh, I'm not sure I really think that's a good constitutional way to proceed or practical. So I've never been comfortable with it. So I, I now find myself, like a lot of people in the country, without a position to pick. You know, on the one hand, uh, there is a disastrous no deal. On the other, hand there is a messy coalition with, uh, without a clear uh, proposal which is bound to be led by Jeremy Corbyn which is something that I uh, would find very hard to accept uh, bringing into uh, power people like Andrew Murray or John McDonnell um, and um, but choosing between those is very difficult well in the end for me I, I would never put a Corbyn government in power but to end up in a position where I'm having to make judgments where every decision seems to me to be wrong very miserable. Now, Esther, one of the things you've been doing seemingly all day is trying to get to the bottom of what's going to happen to Tory peers if they rebel. So we know what happened in the Commons. Tory MPs rebelled. 21 of them had the whip with Jordan. Are you any, any clear on what's going to happen to Tory peers? Uh, yeah, the picture so far seems to be that peers will get an easier ride. I mean, there are looser whipping arrangements in general 
in the Lord, so it's very rare to put three line whip. Um, today, I believe there's what's uh, known as a strong two line whip. Um, but two and a half whip, or something, yeah. Yeah, 2.5. I wouldn't blame some MPs for feeling aggrieved by this because the government made out as though this was a position and a principle. If you vote against the government on this, you lose the whip. Well, not in the House of Lords, it would seem. Were you expecting to lose the whip then? I wouldn't have been able to accept uh, membership of the House of Lords if it came uh, with the uh, requirement that I had to vote with the government all the time. The whole point of it is you're supposed to exercise independent judgment as a check on the power of the House of Commons. Otherwise, the House of Lords has no point. And I'm pleased to say, actually, that the the uniform experience of friends of mine who voted against the government in the House of Lords has been uh, that that, that, that we haven't even been remonstrated with. Uh, It's accepted that that is a constitutional function to play, uh, I would feel if I did not um, did, did not do that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing my duty. I suppose it's also slightly different in the the impact of withdrawing the whip in the House of Commons. That person then can't stand again as a Conservative MP, so they're less likely to be an MP again. Whereas in the Lords, you just carry on being a appear. And, and, and also, don't forget, the House of Lords has correctly got very limited powers. I mean, actually, in this case, but it does have the power, I suppose, to delay something. It's a, it's a very rare instance where its formal role does provide it with the degree of power, but it, it has very limited weak power. And as a result, you can, you can afford to have that kind of independence, otherwise um, you wouldn't work. But I think, just going back to the Commons, you know, for a second, I'm not sure about the judgments on the bill. It is very complicated, but I cannot allow the Conservative Party to remove Greg Clark and Philip Hammond and Richard Harrington, you know, brilliant people of judgment and integrity and moderation and liberal sentiment, and turn around and find I'm not with them. The judgment the Conservative Party's made that it can do without those people is gross misjudgment. I have heard, actually, today a rumour that um, there are some Tory peers who are so annoyed they're considering resigning the whip anyway. We'll see, because often these people do talk a good game. But that is one thing I've heard. Uh, now, Esther, you mentioned there could be some late nights in the Lords. We saw um, quite a lot of peers turning up with their wheelie suitcases this morning. Oh, is that the bell going? Have you got to go and vote? That's very exciting. That's what we've just been talking about. Have you not been paying attention? Well, you are going to go and vote. <laughs> but I think I will, if that's all right with you. Do you know what you're voting on? The, all these motions are the same, which is, shall we carry on debating or move on to the next motion? This is all about getting through the amendments. So it's not actually the substance. This will be a vote about process. Just very quickly, have you got your duvet with you? <laughs> no, I haven't got my duvet with me. I'll let you go, because I don't want the podcast to be the reason that you didn't vote on this uh, ongoing constitutional crisis. Danny Finkelstein, thank you very much. Um, Esther, let's just pick up there. Is Danny walks off to we can we sort of stand up we can see through the door even into the house of lords the gold throne who who says that even in a time of national crisis we can't still do a bit of pomp uh properly so esther this morning we saw uh peers arriving in the house of lords with willy suitcases changes of underpants toothbrushes shaving kits even duvets they said uh, what's going on why is why is the british constitution well, this moment of national crisis is, is, seems to come down to who's got the most stamina. Um, well, as we've just heard, um, there's, in the two debates going on here, one which is ostensibly about procedure, but then underneath really a debate about whether you want no deal to be possible or not in October, um, it will be a case of who can outlast who. So we will see breaks and tear peers. We are seeing them make long speeches um, in an effort to try and delay this motion on the timetable from going forward. And we'll have lots and lots of votes as the Remain Alliance, or those who are opposed to no deal anyway, uh, try and cut that short. So that's why today's debate is going to go on for so long. And at least two peers have told me they've got their pyjamas with them. Have they got them just on underneath their suits? They can whip them off in the, in the chamber. <laughs> That's a lovely image. <laughs> I, I, I really hope their pyjamas look like their urban robes. Yeah. Oh, and uh, another thing that hasn't been much remarked on is that after they get through this whole 
controversial timetable issue. There are actually three more pieces of legislation after that. So some whips and ministers are expecting to be here until six or seven in the morning. Wow. And then they come back and do it all over again. Yes, and we've heard that technically they could just keep sitting right through tomorrow, which would formally mean that Thursday continues to be Wednesday in the House of Lords. <laughs> that would, confer- it would be sort of fitting, really, this Brexit debate, that literally time has stood still. That, that feels like it's about right. That was Esther Webber. At six o'clock now, um, there's a lot of noise going on outside Parliament. There's another protest going on. There's a lot of noise, but not a lot of action in, in the Commons or the Lords at the moment. So um, I asked on Twitter for people to post their questions about what the hell is going on. And I've assembled the crack team of Times supporters to try and answer the questions. Eleni Career, Henry Seffman and Kate Devlin. So we'll just take them in random orders and you can just volunteer for what they're going to do. We'll start one. Leon Spence said, could the Prime Minister in theory go to Brussels and ask for a delay and then use the UK's veto to prevent one? I don't know, but I doubt it very much. I can't believe that under the way that European Council meetings operate, that a member state would be able to ask for something and then veto that same thing. Were he asking for that extension under provisions of law, British law, I think it would presumably be adjudicable in the courts whether he was fulfilling that legal duty anyway. Then he's got a hand up. I think she might actually know the answer. I don't. Oh. <laughs> but one thing that people have suggested is uh, going to the European Council and then getting an ally such as Viktor Orban to veto that request. So essentially undermine our own request to the European Council. Because essentially what he's doing is he's requesting it of the EU27 rather than of the EU28, of which we are a member. So I think we've... Oh, Kate, go on. No, I was just going to say, um, with that kind of lateral thinking, Leon Spence could probably get a job in Downing Street at the moment. <laughs> yeah, he may already, and that's why he was asking the question. An account called Parody Boris Johnson asked a question, but I thought it was a, uh, it wasn't a terrible question, or at least lead us on to an interesting point. In fact, the one you just brought up, Kate. Dear Matt, what do you do when you've been taking advice from someone you thought was a strategic genius, but he just turns out to be a big-headed idiot? This is, of course, a reference to Dominic Cummings. There's been a lot of talk and backlash against Dominic Cummings. Is it all entirely fair, Elaine? Everybody's kind of getting ahead of themselves on this a little bit in that there's all this talk of him being a kind of evil genius or just a genius, depending on what you... Or just (laughs) evil, depending on your... (laughs) It's kind of distracting from the actual story of uh, the massive parliamentary uh, crisis, constitutional crisis that's going on. If Prime Minister eventually figured out that actually the advice he's been taking has been completely wrong. Sack him. You could have him escorted from Downing Street by the police. Do we think there is a plan? Is there a grand strategy in Downing Street? Or is it each day at a time and each mad idea and see what happens? No, I think there is a grand strategy. I think the prorogation, the threats to the Tory rebels uh, have all been designed to provoke a crisis point which would lead to a general election which they believe they can win. That strategy could fall at two junctures. One is that Labour refuses to allow the general election to take place at least before October 31st. And the other is that they might lose the general election. I think there's a really important dynamic at work with Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has wanted to be Prime Minister. In fact, according to his sister, he's wanted to be World King since he was five or six years old. Dominic Cummings has not wanted Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister, perhaps even for three, four, five years, if ever. What he has wanted for however long is to leave the European Union. It is quite clear that Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave allies and alumni who he has brought with him into Downing Street is motivated by taking the UK out of the EU. I think Boris Johnson's health as a uh, Prime Minister you know, in future editions of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography is incidental, collateral to that. Uh, the key thing for the people running Boris Johnson's Downing Street is that the UK leave the EU. Everything else comes second. If I were Boris Johnson, I'd be concerned about that. OK, you touched on the election and the likelihood of uh, winning that. That's been made slightly more complicated by the decision to kick out a load of Tory rebels. Sam Alvis says, of the 21 expelled Tories, what's the likelihood of a Tory hold in their seats? Have they already priced those losses into their election strategy? Is the gain of submissive Tories in safe seats more positive than the furore over the expulsions? What do you think, Kate? I think it's a really interesting question because at the minute, one thing that some of the rebels are starting to consider is how messy it would be if they did stand uh, at a time when the Conservatives 
don't want the Brexit party to stand in lots of seats because they might take just enough votes to stop the Tories winning. And you add in another extra thing to that mix and suddenly people just get a bit confused in the ballot box and think, wait a minute, this is my MP, therefore they must be the official Conservative candidate. And particularly at a time when, although headline polls are interesting, they don't really give us the full picture, that what's happening locally and the different way that votes could split. If you do have a situation where you have a Conservative candidate, an independent ex-Conservative MP and a Brexit Party candidate, I mean, that could definitely lead the way open to Labour or the Lib Dems taking seats. Although it would be quite extraordinary for a lot of these seats. I was looking through the list yesterday and, you know, more than half, more than two thirds even, are have massive Conservative majorities. And from my experience of visiting places um, outside, uh, essentially, people don't follow politics closely enough to uh, know whether their MP has necessarily quit their party, that, that sort of thing. So, in the end, at the end of the day, a lot of people just vote for what party they were going to vote for. Yeah, and there's always a debate about the value of incumbency, but the people who say that incumbency is most valuable are the incumbents in uh, particular seats. Right, final question then. Chi the cynic said, Why, oh, why must we be saddled with Burko as speaker? The man is a pompous ass and long past his sell by date. He's been. Kate, you've got your hand up. Right, go for that then. <laughs> Michael Gove. Michael uh, Gove. Michael Gove. Michael Gove um, led an ill fated attempt to try and get rid of um, John Burgo a couple of years ago. It failed. That's as good as explanation as any. Although he did, you know, he has inserted himself once again in every possible uh, opportunity, both in the debate over whether or not there should be a debate, also really um, sort of flexing his muscles during PMQs, telling uh, Boris Johnson off. Is there any prospect of John Burgo going anywhere, Henry? These are very possibly the last few days of John Burko's uh, controversial speakership. If there is a general election, uh, it seems possible, perhaps even likely, that some sort of pro-Brexit candidate would be uh, fielded against him in Buckingham. The convention, of course, is that major parties do not contest the seat that the speaker is in, where they run as the speaker. It's worth noting that John Burko has faced that sort of threat before. In 2010, Nigel Farage stood for UKIP uh, against John Burko, then a new speaker uh, in Buckingham, and contrived to come third. Uh, second place was a pro-EU former Tory. But to my, Nigel Farage, which is not a sentence I use very often, uh, his campaign was slightly hampered by being involved in a, in a plane crash. I think joint. that was on polling day. But um, it, it, it was a different time anyway in terms of where the European debate was. Uh, it seems plausible, perhaps likely, that John Burko would uh, take the opportunity to say, you know, I have done my bit, I have made sure Parliament has been given its voice and, you know, off I go on my speaking tour and, and I'll have a crossbench peerage, thank you very much. Clues as to who the next speaker might be? I mean, there are loads and loads and loads of MPs who want it. All three deputy speakers could well run. Sir Lindsay Hoyle has been a deputy speaker since 2010, is a Labour MP, but very well liked on the Tory benches. Uh, the other two deputy speakers are former Labour opposition chief, Whit Rosie Winterton, and uh, Dame Eleanor Lang, who's a Tonga-serving female MP. Uh, sometimes called the mother of the house. Uh, she would complicate Lindsay Hoyle's bid, perhaps, by drawing away Labour support. Uh, speakership elections are really fun. Also worth saying, <laughs> worth saying... As if we haven't had enough fun. Well, no, no, but it's a really, it's a really important point. If John Burke... Oh, uh, it's not that important, but... Um, <laughs> it, you heard it here first, Redbox listeners. Uh, if John Burko stands down at the coming election, whenever that may be, and the new House of Commons that is returned after that election needs to get on really, really quickly to do something, be it repeal an extension bill so that Boris Johnson can leave with no deal, or be it enforce some new extension or whatever, um, the first order of business all those MPs will have is electing a new common speaker. And the speaker elections are presided over by the father of the House, the longest-serving MP. That will not be Ken Clark, who is standing down at the next election. Um, if he stands again and wins, it will be Dennis Skinner. So you will have the joy of watching Dennis Skinner, theoretically scourge of the establishment, though he will have been the longest-serving member of it uh, at that point, uh, presiding over the House of Commons for a day until it chooses the new occupant of the Speaker's chair. All of that seems like it could be a very, very long way off, and yet it could happen in three weeks' time. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, you've all got loads of work to do, Eleni, uh, Henry and Kate. Thank you very much. Oh my goodness, so it's, what, it's now eight o'clock. This is where we are. The Commons has passed a bill to compel the Prime Minister to ask Brussels to delay Brexit beyond October 31st 
which he doesn't want to do. The bill includes a plan put forward by Stephen Quinnett to bring back Theresa May's till back to the House of Commons, the one that lots of Labour MPs wish they'd voted for. Now, uh, apparently that amendment passed by accident. I know, this is not normal. We don't have time to dwell on that. Uh, after that, Boris, I don't want an election, Johnson got up in the House of Commons and made the case for a general election, while Jeremy, I want a general election, Corbyn, argued against one. At least, not now. So far, the Commons agrees, refusing to back a motion to trigger an election on October the 15th. How long that uh, will hold for, given that there's enormous confusion in both the Labour policy on this and the SNP. I'm joined now by Francis Elliott, the political editor of The Times, to sum up what has been... <laughs> we are used to extraordinary days in politics, but we've had a Prime Minister's first PMQs, we've had a spending review, we've had backbench MPs taking control of the agenda, and a Prime Minister who, at the beginning of the week, didn't want a general election, trying to force a general election, and then not getting it. Yes. What do we know at the end of the day that we didn't know this morning? How many neurofen it takes? <laughs> <laughs> We know that Boris Johnson's central effort to run to a cliff edge and establish a, a, a pretext for a, for a general election that he has to win is in some trouble uh, for two reasons. I think they were taken aback by the um, uh, how skillfully drafted the Rebel Alliance bill was. I think if, if there had been uh, real issues that they could kind of break it down, we would have heard about them by now. Uh, and and they appear to have, well, let's see, but they appear possibly to have miscalculated uh, that Jeremy Corbyn could do no other but support a snap election to resolve the issue. So if the game plan had been to call an election framed on the choice of in or out, a clean exit one way or the other, no deal or manage, you know, or, or deal, or Jeremy Corbyn, uh, that looks to be in some trouble now. So they may have cards to play. We are waiting to see them. There is still some confusion about whether the SNP could, are in exactly the same place as Labour in terms of wanting to resist, Labour MPs wanting to resist a election before the 31st. Um, and there is some confusion about Jeremy Corbyn's own position. But I think the... Uh, a, a sentence you could use at any point in the last three years. Yeah. But this is the key point of, do, do the opposition get the bill through, let him prorogue Parliament, kill four weeks and then come back, or go for an election and get an election before October 31st? Exactly. And Tim Corbyn think that well, they're going to win that election, so it's fine, we can do that, and there are lots of Labour MPs who don't think they're going to win the election. Boris Johnson might, and therefore push yeah. ahead with no deal. Yes, yes. I mean, in, in essence, that's that's right. I mean, uh, and there's further complications that, that that Mr. Corbyn may believe that, uh, with every week that passes, a, a sort of centrist realignment um, around the poles of figures like, you know, from disparate from Philip Hammond through to I don't know Stephen Kinnock, might start to emerge that, that, that looks very different from his agenda. The other significant development this evening has been a letter from Damien Green. Yes. Uh, signed by 100 Tory MPs calling for the reinstatement of the 21 rebels. This was not part of the plan at the weekend for Downing Street when they yeah. threatened to expel MPs. Yeah, I'm quite taken back by that. I mean, my initially last night I spoke to a couple of um, old sweats to be rude, and, and, and a couple of you know, young thrusters, and I was, who I thought might be troubled, and I was struck by that, you know, they, they saw that the logic of this position, that this was, this kind of had to happen, uh, and um, I am therefore, I, it was always going to be tricky to kick out 22 or 21, but I think they really, they, they've, they, I don't, it's unclear about just how how much damage this has caused, but it's certainly rocky. And you wrote a piece of the Times uh, talking about how Boris Johnson should have been better in picking his yeah. enemies. Do you think we'll end up looking back on the last day, two or three days, at a point at which unforced missteps are made by 
Boris Johnson or the Downing Street machine, which have undermined themselves. Both have not added to the lustre of their reputation in the last 24 hours. And now that's a little unfair. Markets always overcorrect. And, you know, only a, a week ago they were all geniuses. And uh, <laughs> 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 it's the nature of journalism that they may yet be geniuses again. So <laughs> I, withhold, I withhold total judgment, but. Um, it's, it's the action of a campaign, not a government, and that's what I keep on keep on coming back to. This is a campaign, not a government. The problem is, if they're not de if they're denied an election, they are neither a campaign nor a government. And they do seem to spend the last couple of days campaigning against people who are supposed to be on their side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's it. That was a whole day in Westminster. Rather a lot happened. Rather a lot less is clearer. We don't really have a government. We will probably have an election, but we don't know where, we don't know when, but I know we'll vote again some sunny day. <laughs>